GG, beautifully read. And again, I always have my appreciation for the worship team. I just sit there thinking, we are so blessed for you guys. Thank you so much for blessing us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that wonderful passage of promise and hope and, and calling and uh, renewal. Father, we, we submit to your wisdom and your power and your mercy that goes along with the power. For you created us in your image and you have given us life. You've given us a call. You've given us purpose. You have surrounded us with gracious and influential people. And you have written the law in our hearts. Father, you also know those secret chambers in our hearts where we kind of keep things hidden from each other, from ourselves, and try to keep them hidden from you. But we know that you seek them out. And so uh, you wait with patience for us to speak to you and then for us to listen to you. And you wait to listen to us. What a gift. Father, we... um, We know that you you offer your own fellowship with us in spite of our failings, in spite of those dark places. And so, Father, we approach you this morning with humility and reverence. We desire to carry in us the spirit of the Lord Jesus. Leave behind the fretting and the worrying and the twisted desires and the hatred and the malice that was listed there in Colossians. Father, we ask that, uh, that you help us to untwist ourselves, to untwist those twisted desires and, and keep turning until we turn out right, that we keep turning around until we come out straight with you. Father, we want the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. We want to put to death those things that cause misery to ourselves and to those around us. Father, we want to find rest and we want to find joy. We want to find our heart's desire in you. And so, We ask that you make yourself real and present to us. But Father, not just to us, that we, our lives, are able to point the people we work with and play with and the people we cry with and carry burdens with, the lonely people, we ask that you help us to point them to you and the gift of life and the gift of grace. Father, we ask you to be near us. That you said we are chosen, we are holy, and we are dearly loved. And so, Father, we want to reflect that back to you. And we also want to reflect that your love for us back to others. So, Lord, we do ask that your word dwell within us. We do ask for the peace of Christ to dwell in our hearts. And it's just as we look into your scriptures, in Jesus' name, amen. We are moving on with the Holy Spirit Uh, some topics of the Holy Spirit as part of our series on the Trinity. And uh, this morning we are going to look at holiness, the power to live well. Let me turn it on. Holiness, that's a a word that makes us cringe, doesn't it? Uh, We kind of see that word and we kind of, we're not really all in on that, you know, because when somebody, when you describe somebody as holy, what you're really describing them as saying, yeah, they're really holier than thou, you know. Or if you were to tell me, I am holy, uh, I would say what you really mean is you're holier than thou. And uh, it's one of those words that, that we kind of want to back away from that we can't admit. It, it's, you know, we can't, we're supposed to be holy, but if we ever were aware of our holiness, then that sort of cancels out the holiness. Uh, it's kind of like humility. You know, if you say, uh, I'm, I, I, we ought to be humble, and if you were to say, I'm humble, 
that sort of cancels out the humility that we're supposed to be. And so holiness is kind of one of those words that you think, I'm supposed to be that, but if I admit that I'm that, then I'm not that. And so it just kind of causes all kinds of, all kinds of strange things. Well, really, all holiness means is to function well, to live well. That's all it means. It comes from the word, uh, it appears in the Greek, erite, which basically means we translate as virtue or excellence, sometimes holiness. Um, it's all just there. It's, it's all really it means is just to, to live well. Richard Foster says it means able to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And that's really all we're getting at. And rather than making us feel uncomfortable, being holy makes us feel comfortable in the good when it's functioning well. And it feels strange because we are so used to dysfunction in our world that that feels normal. And so when we look at somebody who actually functions well, they're the strange ones. They're the weird ones. But in reality, it's just the other way around. It's being holy, being able to function well, but being comfortable in the good through the power of the Holy Spirit, that feels right. It's the dysfunction that is wrong. It's something that we want to be when we are at our best. We want to be holy. It's something that God wants us to be is holy. He wants us to function well. So when we look at this, that we're going to look at it this morning, if we kind of get into it, sometimes it's good to see what it is not, okay? Holiness is not legalism, okay? Holiness is not legalism, putting things on rules and regulations. That, that deals with exter- exter- external things. But, but it pays attention to the heart. Holiness centers our attention on the heart, not on the external, not on the rules and regulations, okay? We'll look at that a little bit later. Holiness is not otherworldly. Sometimes we think holiness is something for those people who kind of float in the upper atmosphere, you know? And I, I still remember a friend of mine coming across a friend of mine in college on campus, you know, and, and I said, hey, Stephanie, what's up? Jesus is up, you know? And I was like, yeah, whatever, you know? <laughs> it's like, that's kind, of, that's kind of how we feel holiness is, is these people who just sort of float around and not really living in the world. It is actually world-affirming that this is, this is a good creation, and we affirm that, and we affirm that with the people we're around us. It is actually world-affirming, not otherworldly. Holiness is not death of life. Like some people say, oh, you're going to be holy. You lose all kind of passion, all kind of fun, all kind of laughter. You're just too holy to, you know, take seriously. That's not true. It is life-giving. It's gossip that kills. Holiness is life-affirming, life-giving. It's just the opposite of that. Holiness is not self-punishment. Sometimes we think, you know, it's the old uh, stereotype of the monks, you know, whipping themselves in the back, trying to beat the sin out of them, or those, those ancient saints who used to live on poles. I don't know if you ever heard of them or not. They'd live on poles and kind of sacrifice themselves. They think that is self-punishment. It is not self-punishment, but it is habits that we can rely on. It does mean effort. It's not, it's not works of righteousness, but there is effort involved. It is a bodily spirituality. In other words, spirit and body work in harmony together. Together. It's not the bodies are bad or the spirit's good and vice versa and these are in conflict with each other. It's something that they work together. It is not works righteousness. It's not trying to gain righteousness through works, but it does include effort. It does include some of our action. Holiness is not a guaranteed blissful life, but it is one that is solid. 
when the things do happen, when the storms do hit, when the crises do come our way, we have the house built on rock, not sand. Not a guarantee of a life without, without troubles, but it doesn't guarantee a life that is more solid. Holiness is not perfectionism, it is progress. And there will always be room for progress. Holiness is a life that functions well. That's basically what it is. It is a life that functions well. Uh, it's being able to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. That's holiness. Very, very simple. So, a holy person, what is a holy person? Let's look at a description of them. We've looked at what it's not. Let's look at what the, the holy person looks like. A holy person is responsible. We say responsible. And I, I heard uh, Dallas Willard break this down, basically. He said, basically, it's responsible, and I liked it, so I stole it from him. It is responsible, someone who's able to respond well. It's that uh, erote word again. It's that virtue. It's building your house on a rock and not, and not on sand. And we have a couple of good examples of that in the Old Testament. Joseph you, many of you know the story of Joseph. You know, he kind of got promoted up and up after, after his brother sold him into slavery. He went to Egypt, and the people saw that he was gifted, and he kept moving up in the, in the ranks <clears throat> until uh, actually Potiphar's wife kind of took a, took a liking to him and tried to seduce him. And we, most of us know that story that she kept saying, trying to seduce him. And he says, no, that would dishonor God. It would dishonor your husband. It would dishonor you. We're not going to do this. And she reached out to where she even grabbed him and he escaped and she held on to his cloak and then accused him. And of course, he gets thrown in, the, thrown in jail, thrown in prison, but again, his gifts just keep coming up until he works himself up to be the second in command only to Pharaoh himself. This is a man who was responsible. Another character is Daniel. We looked at Daniel last week. His enemies were jealous of Daniel because of his excellent spirit the Bible says, his, his gifting, gifted spirit. And so they thought the only way to get to him would be to use his religious devotion against him. And so that's what they did. They talked the, the, the king into making a law that if you didn't bow down the king, you would be, you'd be executed. And they knew that they would catch Daniel with that. And what did Daniel do? He just went along as he always did. Went along praying as he always has. And so they captured him and they threw him in the lion's den. But God protected him from the lion's den. I heard one preacher say that uh, the lions didn't eat him because Daniel was all backbone. <laughs> so that's a good way to look at it. So Daniel is responsible. Joseph was responsible. The three Hebrew children thrown in the fiery furnace were responsible. And we also know that there was a fourth person in that furnace, which we will get to in a little bit later, which is God himself. I believe it's God himself. So, is a holy person is responsible, responsible. A holy person is normal, is normal. We, they, they, they may look strange to us, but again, it's because we're so used to dysfunction. But they are really the normal. It doesn't mean that they're usual. You know, it doesn't mean that they're everyday. That's not the same thing. Normal means the ones who, who set the norm. The ones who set the norm, they're, that's, they're the normal ones. It doesn't necessarily mean they're usual, because sometimes they're not. But it does mean the people who are set, the, set the norm. And setting the norm is not perfection, but it is attainable. It is able to get there. When, when Jesus talked about uh, loving your enemy, 
He did that because he knew that was best. We don't do that because we don't really think it's best. We'd rather demonize our enemy rather than love them because we really don't think that it's really that good to love them. But Jesus did that. He knows that it's best. This is a person who functions well. Who sets the norm? Who sets the norm in our society? Social media, politicians, mainstream media, teachers, preachers sometimes set the norm. Well, in Jesus' time, scribes and Pharisees set the norm. They decided what was right and what was holy and what was good. They set the norm. Unfortunately, not all the scribes and Pharisees are dead. There's still some living today. And these are people who know the law so well that they feel like it is their calling, it is, it is their um, purpose in life to point out right from wrong in everybody. That's what they think is their calling. The problem is, there's no, there's no problem with discerning right from wrong. That's a good thing. The problem is the way they do it. The way they do it kills. They attack. And it destroys Rather than looking at the heart, which in the heart of human, every human heart has this longing to connect with God, whether they know it or not. And instead of approaching that, they focus on the externals. And Jesus says, be careful of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. He didn't say, be careful, watch out for the scribes and Pharisees. He said, watch out for the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And what is that? It's their hypocrisy. Because they try to make righteousness and holiness everything external. Do it right. Do it right. That's, that's it. But when they do it on their own, they're going to fail. And when they fail, they cover it up. That's hypocrisy. Be careful of that. Be careful of their hypocrisy and be careful of falling into the same trap of our own hypocrisy. The holy, a holy person is a normal person who lives well, who is comfortable in the good. It's the dysfunction that's abnormal, not the functional. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Person, is rooted in another order, meaning he is rooted in another kingdom. And that's what Colossians 3 is all about. It starts off talking about, you know, the, 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 he made the peace of Christ, or ends with the peace of Christ dwelling in us. He talks about putting, the commands are to put away these things, put to death these things, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. He talks about clothing yourself in righteousness. All this speaks of progress, all this speaks of a process, not just some automatic event that happens to us. Oh, it's electronic. (laughs) I'm waiting for the lightning bolts. That's what Colossians 3 is all about. You also look at Matthew 5, 5 through 7, the the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 18, where he talks about the children we just saw today, the children coming to Jesus. John 3 talks about being born again. Those are all different aspects of one big great truth. And that is, we start over. We have the Colossians, Paul talks about this in Colossians 3, that this new life is renewing us. And it's starting over with all these things. This is a uh, a new thing to begin and I think he's, he, he talks about children as being an example that you come to the kingdom as children because they don't know how to be a hypocrite. They come as an open book. You know, we talk about being careful, don't let the cat out of the bag. 
you know, don't, you know, your reputation is the most important. And that's how I was raised. My mom grew up in a small town of cotton farmers. Prosper, Texas is about 300 people back then. Maybe not even bigger, maybe not even that big. Where everybody knew everybody. And the most important thing was to maintain your reputation with your neighbors. And I think I may have told this story before. My grandfather, Papa, was a, was a good Southern Baptist teetotaler. And he never touched alcohol except when he had a cold. And uh, he would take whiskey and honey. And he, my mom tells this story about he would, had, he would drink some whiskey and honey because he had a bad cold. And it, it, the preacher didn't come and visit him that day. And he was so worried that, he would be able to, that the preacher was going to smell alcohol on his breath. You know, that was that important. But that's not what we're called to do. And children don't know how to do that. They don't know how to cover up. They don't know how to let the cat out of the bag. I mean, they, they don't know how to keep the cat in the bag is what I meant to say. They don't know how to, they, they have to be taught to let the cat out of the bag. They have to taught to be hypocrites. Because they come just totally wide open. They don't have any problem letting the cat out. And he says, let the children come to come this way. This is the way you come and this is rooted in this new order, this new kingdom of God. It goes to the heart. That's where he deals with. So what do we do? What do we do about this? Well, I want to say this is, this is the main point I want to get across. If you don't remember anything else, I just want you to remember this, that, that holiness is not a virtue that we get. It is a relationship we maintain Virtue, holiness is not some virtue that we try to obtain, that we try to grasp for. Holiness is this relationship that we maintain. And that's where the secret is. Most people have no idea about this. They don't really know what this means. They think holiness means quitting something, quitting some vice. You know, I'm going to quit drinking, or I'm going to quit smoking, or I'm going to quit using bad language, or I'm going to quit uh, lying or porn or whatever it is. I just, I just have to quit, I'm, you know. And Colossians 3 tells us to put to death this. And we will talk about this in a minute. How do we do this? And he says, let the peace of Christ dwell in us. This is what changes. This is what changes us. And really, we have two options here. We have two options to this, uh, um, to do this. And James tells us about this. He says we accept what God is doing with us. What is doing with us. But you don't develop this relationship, if we don't maintain this relationship, these two consequences is all we've got. And one is perfectionism. We think that holiness has to be perfect. And the other option is resignation. That we decide, well, I'm just, it's, I'm a lost cause. I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. And we think those are the only two options that are available to us. But again, perfection is not it. It's progress. And there is plenty of room to progress for the rest of our lives. Plenty of room to grow. The answer to resignation, to me, is Romans 8. Where we say, oh, I just can't do anymore. Romans 8 says that there is no longer any condemnation in you in Christ. That that has been taken care of. That we change this because we, have, we are renewed by new life. Not because we grit our teeth and decide to quit something. And we're going to face it head on. Resignation means we... We allow Christ to change us through new life. 
Now, we may be intent on changing. We may decide, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going I'm I'm to stick to it. I'm going to look it head on. I'm not going to be involved in this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And we, that's, our, that's our good intent, except then we stall out. We stall out, and we keep stalling out, and so we just kind of give up. You know, it's like being stalled out on the, on the highway. You know, you, you get your car stalls on the highway, so you get out, and you have your, your jacket on, you pull up your hood, and you just sit there and say, I'm just going to wait the heavenly AAA truck comes by and takes me to heaven. That's all I'm going to do. Or maybe I'll come to church once a week or twice a month or whatever it is, and maybe the preacher or the music or something will jumpstart me, I'll bring my jumper cables, and this will jumpstart me, and it'll get me down the road a little bit further until I stall out again, then I'll come back to church again. That's not how it works. That's not, the, that's not how it's going to function. So we have this question. Do you plan on sinning? Go on sinning. I mean, really, there's only two questions. You either plan on going ahead, go on, keep sinning, or you plan not to. And most of the time we say, well, I don't really want to, but I need to. I need to keep that door open just in case I need it. But we're buying the lie that somehow this will be better. What we need to do is burn that bridge and commit ourselves to Christ and when we fail, we know that God will uphold us and he will accept, accept us. But without a plan, we're just going to be trying to manage it the rest of our lives, trying to manage what our, our faults are, our vices are. We're just going to try to keep it under control somehow and just somehow manage it without Christ. But that's not how it works. So we need a plan. How is the plan? The principle of indirection. The principle of indirection. You're not going to win if you, head it, if you try to fight it head on. Say, I'm going to try to fight this drinking head on. I'm going to try this, whatever it is you're into, whatever vice you have, my, my anger, my, my worry, my anxiety, whatever that is, I'm going to hit it head on. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It needs to be indirection. There are three things, three elements to this. One are just the things that happen to us the things that naturally happen to us. Uh, James, <clears throat> James writes in the very beginning of his book, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace, in which we now stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, per perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Same thing. He's just saying, accept where you are. Don't wish you were somebody else. Don't take the things that are happening to you and, and say, okay, I'm waiting until my situation changes and then I'm going to get right. Then I'm going to do some things. I'm going to spend my time with God. Or I'm going to wait until my, my, my place changes and then I'll, this will happen. God never blesses anyone where they are not. Okay? He only blesses you where you are. And wherever you are right now, this is where God wants to bless you. And sometimes it's really difficult. We, I, I know people who have gone through unbelievable crises and tragedies. 
That's where we are. And this is where God will bless us. He will never bless you in some place that you are not. It will always be where you are. This is what Jesus taught. And this is what James said. And how did James learn this? James learned it by watching his big brother, Jesus. Jesus always did what he taught. He didn't just teach something that he hadn't done himself. So when he says, love your enemies, he's dealt. He's a, he's a, a what we'd call it, you know, a, a, he's, a, he's a carpenter, a, a, a laborer, you know. And he, I'm sure he dealt with tough customers. And he said, love your enemies. He said, I'm, I'm sure he's probably lent out his tools before and never got them back. And so in Luke, he says, if, some, if you lend something to somebody, don't expect it to come back. He practiced what he preached. And this is what James is saying. This is, you do, you, you stay faithful to God. These things happen to you, and we don't want them to happen. We don't like them. They're painful. They're hurtful. But God can use them in us. And we will see a side of God that we have never seen before. And I wish it was easier than this, but I don't think it is. The second thing is to plan to grow in grace. And this is where the effort comes from. It's not hitting things head on. It's working with God and what he's doing with you. Plans to grow in grace. I'm going to mention two things here that sound contradictory, but they're not. They actually work together. Sometimes we grow by this sudden infusion of the grace of God. It just comes on you. And you lose this desire to drink or whatever it is or to get drunk or whatever it is you're, you're dealing with or to worse. For some reason, it just disappears by this incredible infusion. And we make quantum leaps in our growth. And the only way to respond there is to fall on our knees and praise. As far as I can tell, it's all sovereign. There's nothing we can do to manufacture that. It just happens. And we fall on our knees in adoration. The other thing is that there are things we can practice there are, there are disciplines that we can practice, that we work with God, that we say, yes, our intent is to follow him. And prayer and scripture are indispensable. They are the non-negotiables. You have to do being scripture and prayer. But we have other tools in our tool chest also, other, other tools in the tool shed to help us there. They're called spiritual disciplines. When I was dating Sue, she gave me this book called Celebration of Discipline. I brought it before by Richard Foster. And as you can tell, it's been used quite a bit. Where he lays out disciplines for different areas that we can do. For example, if you're dealing with, um, maybe if you're dealing with anger, fasting may be a discipline for you. Because then you start to learn that you don't always get your way. You don't always get what you want. Or if you're worried, maybe you need to practice the discipline of celebration. Learn how to laugh again. See a funny movie. Or go to a comedy show. Or, or just take your spouse out for dinner just because you want to. Just because you want to celebrate. Practice that as a discipline. You might even need to practice the discipline of sleep. If you're up all night. Hurry. Maybe urgency and hurry is your problem. Then maybe solitude is what you need. Some time away. Up until the COVID, I would always practice a, re a week-long silent retreat every year to get away and be silent. And guess what? The church survives without me. 
Amazing. And sometimes we need to get away and do that silence and solitude because the world will get along without us. And finally, the third part in all this is the one who pulls it all together. It is the Holy Spirit who changes us. It is God who changes us, the one who dwells inside of us. He transforms us. He renews us. He provides the riches in the soil where we can plant the tree into the richness of the soil so that the fruit is produced. No tree ever tries to produce the fruit. All they do is put their roots down into the richness of the soil and the fruit comes naturally. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. We put our roots into the Holy Spirit. He renews. He changes. He enables us. He gives us the works. He gives us the gifts, which we'll look at next week. He gives us this fruit that comes out. We don't have to try it. It just happens of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All those things just get produced, not because we try, but because they're natural. So it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. The things that turn around us, some of the disciplines, some of the things we need to practice, and then the Holy Spirit changes us. It's not gritting our teeth and facing it head on with willpower. It's maintaining a relationship. You know, it's difficult. It's difficult to make virtue appealing these days. People think, oh gosh, you know, you talk about virtue, you think you're goody-goody and all that kind of stuff. I disagree. Virtue is incredibly appealing. Incredibly appealing. Sue and I every now and then will watch clips off YouTube. I was just talking with Don Griffin about this this morning. He was doing, he brought it up and said the same thing, that they watch these YouTube videos off of Britain's Got Talent or something like that. And um, we were watching one, and there was this Irish priest who came on stage, and he deals with people in crisis and tragedy and deep depression and grief, uh, his life. And so he sings this old song, several years old, by R.E.M., called Everybody Hurts. And he has a great voice, for one thing. I've heard better, but it's had a great voice. But then he starts singing these words. And see if I can read them and not getting choked up. When your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone. When you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go because everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes. And there's this noble man a virtuous man with a good voice, when he sings those words and they pan into the audience, everybody is crying. The judges are crying. Virtue is appealing. And we see that and there's something in us in our God-given soul that moves with that, that moves our spirit. It is very appealing. In literature, I think Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia is the best example. He personifies virtue. The lions personifies virtue. And guess what? He's the guy everybody wants to hang out with. He's the one people want to be with. Because he's holy. He functions well. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. And Gary's going to lead us um, as we remember the life and the dead direction of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to his coming again. So Gary, would you come on up?